Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. True Hauntings is a frightfully good production. In the small town of Mayanup, located in the southwest of Western Australia during the 1950s, a series of mysterious incidents bewildered the nation. Gilbert Smith and his family, who lived and worked for Bill Hack at Mayanup, had become the talk of Australia after stones and other objects seemingly fell out of the sky. These mysterious showers of stones materialised out of thin air in front of hundreds of amazed witnesses during the three-year reign of what became known as the Mayanup Poltergeist. The case attracted worldwide attention, and to this day the mystery of the falling stones remains unsolved. Why were these families targeted, and by what? The Mayanup Poltergeist is one of Australia's most intriguing cases of stone-throwing activity and has never been solved. Hi, I'm Renata. And I'm Anne. And in this, our 100th episode of the True Hauntings podcast, we are taking you to Western Australia to explore legends, myths and true stories that will leave you wondering whether the spirits of this ancient land had something to do with the strange events of 1955. Anne and Renata have been investigating paranormal occurrences for the past 20 years. They have been at the center of various unexplained phenomena and have witnessed countless ghostly experiences. The duo now turn to high-profile cases that have attracted the eyes of the world. Between the dimensions we see and the dimensions we don't, supernatural forces are at play. Evil lurks within the shadows of our homes and in the darkest corners of our minds. It follows us like a shadow forever. This is where nightmares become reality. This is True Hauntings. Hello, Anne, and welcome back to the studio. Oh, listen to you talking. Six saucy sailors sewed schnitzels into sheets. On a Saturday afternoon. On a su- sunny Saturday afternoon. There you go. <laughs> uh, sunny Saturday siesta. Yes. How many S's can we possibly fit in there? Oh, lots. You sound so professional now. Oh, yes. You're speaking so proper. Mm, it's amazing what a few weeks of, um, yeah. Um, no teeth. No teeth. <laughs> <laughs> or, it was just one tooth, it but by God, God, yeah, it really, it's, it really disrupted your um, 
it, your, your sparkle, your it, shine. Yes, and um, it's amazing how one little thing can change the tonality of your voice. <laughs> You've and, been listening to yourself, haven't you? Yes, it's been horrible. <laughs> been horrible. So um, I'm sending out a big thank you to everyone that has persisted over these last few uh, True Hauntings episodes while I've been sloshing my way through words. But I think everyone would have been grateful that you pushed on through it and still gave everyone a story every week. So I wouldn't be too upset. Our fans out there are very forgiving. They are. I did my best. I soldiered on. Yeah. Now this episode is coming out next week. Um, on the Friday, we we are so behind, but this case has ended up being not huge. It's a monster, mm. and it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had to uh, sort of slash really, it. We've slashed well, it. In we've half. also had to dig deep because there's not a lot of information out there about it. No. Uh, we have two books that we are going to be heavily using. One is The Mystery of the Mayanup Poltergeist by Helen Hack, which I did actually manage to order quite some time ago, thankfully. Took a while for it to come in, but we got it. Because we were going to attempt this a few months ago and we, we looked were. at it then. Probably and six went months ago. And looked at it and went. Oh, my God, no. That's a bit convoluted. (laughs) Uh, And the other one we're going to be relying on, and this book, look, I can't recommend this one enough, The Australian Poltergeist, The the Stone-Throwing Spook of Humpty Doo and Many Other Cases by Tony Healy and Paul Cropper. It is so well written. They've Mm -hmm. got so many amazing photos in there. If you've got someone in your family that loves uh, poltergeist stories, buy it for them for Christmas because I think Christmas will only be a week away Mm. once we do this one. I think we've got this one and one more, and then we'll be taking a break for a few weeks. I think our last one is on the 23rd, Mm -hmm. or is it the 16th? I can't remember. Uh, Next week is the 16th. Yeah, so it must be the 23rd. So this will be a two-parter. We'll have the part one this week, and then we'll have the the part two to wrap up the year. And then we're going to have a well-earned rest, because Auntie Anne's brains are leaking out through her ears right now. Are they? They are. Oh, oh that's bitch. <laughs> that was such an insincere. Oh. That's so sad. Yeah, suck it up, princess, as you'd say. <laughs> I was so kind to you when you had a tooth missing. I know. <laughs> oh. Well, well, yes and no. Well, you, you did take a few advantages. Well, there was a few moments where one couldn't help but have a chuckle because mm. it was just it was there in my face. What am I meant to do? It was. We're doing something exciting next Thursday. Yes. You remember what it is? We're recording. We're 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 investigating. We're filming. We're filming. That's the word we're looking for. We're going to shoot another episode of Devil's Advocate with Isaac and Claire Butterfield at a location uh, out Cessnock Way, and uh, it's going to be an absolute hoot. It'll be fun. We're actually going to plan it out and be ready for it. And these guys are going to head home and we're going to stay the night and see if anything happens during the night. Is that Does that mean we might pick up in the pub? No. No, <laughs> absolutely not. No, not oh. at all. All right. Well, do you know what I think it is? It's time to start the story. It is time to start the story. The Smith family sat uneasily at the wooden table as they finished their evening meal. 
The kerosene lantern cast eerie shadows within the confines of the corrugated iron shack. Only the younger children chatted happily, seeming oblivious to the palpable fear in the dimly lit room. Jean glanced out the window to see the fading light of dusk disappear below the horizon. She shivered in the chill, heralding the cold autumn night. We'd better put some more wood on the campfire, she thought. The visitors will start arriving soon. Her hopes that the Janik would leave them to have a quiet night and a, a good sleep for the first time in weeks were dashed as she heard the all-too-familiar thuds of stones raining down on the roof. Two stones fell inside their cottage, landing harmlessly amongst the crockery. She looked up at the roof, knowing, even as she did, that there would not be a hole through which the stones could have passed. One of the younger children picked up one, but let out a cry when she dropped the sizzling hot stone. Gilbert sighed with relief as the headlights of his boss's utility cut through the near blackness of the campsite. Gilbert walked outside to greet his employer, Bill Hack, as he alighted from his vehicle. At that moment, they both saw a stone travelling horizontally about half a metre above the ground. Bill stood mesmerised as the stone slowly came towards him, tapped him on the thigh and fell harmlessly to the ground. It was 1955 and the bizarre and unexplained phenomenon known as the Mayanup Stones had dragged the residents of two farming properties in the southwest corner of Western Australia into the media spotlight. Over the next two years, it would baffle and fascinate thousands of people from all walks of life. Many would visit the Shire of Boyup Brook, and experience the phenomena firsthand, while thousands of others would read about the phenomena in newspapers, books, and magazines. And that came from the book. Yeah, The Mystery of the Maynard Poltergeist by Helen Hack, mm-hmm. who is actually related, I think she was the daughter-in-law of one of the uh, children mm-hmm. uh, and uh, sorry not daughter-in-law the 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 two main people that lived at the original farmstead was one of their children's wife mm-hmm. and so she was the daughter-in-law mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and she gathered up all the stories interviewed hundreds of people for their first-hand accounts and created this book fascinating the amount of stories yes. it just blows my mind now, ask me what else happens in Mayanup. Oh, what else happens in Mayanup? Nothing. <laughs> is it very much oh, like up sure, I'm sure Mayanup is a bit... I've seen a few photos and it's nice. I do know they have some sort of big festival out there because I remember them talking about some festival that is out Mayanup way. Nope. Now, nope. <laughs> so if you look at the map of Australia um, from space... And you would have to take your eye right down to the west coast, follow it all the way down until you almost are going around that bottom corner. And Mayanup sits just in that little bottom bottom corner area there. Where the fat bum sticks out, that yeah, part yeah, on the left-hand side. Yes, yep. yes, yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and uh, I, had, I had a look at... 
some information about May and Up. Yep. Some background information. I like it, Renata. There's Dig up some details on the town. Well, what have you got? There's not much there. Um, it's located between uh, south of Boyup Brook, Brook on Blackwood Road in the southwest region of Western Australia. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> now, in 2022, I had a look at the survey. Um, and the at, survey at, said... At, at the statistics... And uh, they said that in 2022, there were about 174 people living in the township. Oh, that's huge. That's a big piss up there at the pub every Friday night. (laughs) It's massive. It's massive. (laughs) And look, it probably would have remained fairly well unknown for the rest of its life as a township because there's nothing really remarkable about it. Sorry again, uh, people. Apart from the up. beautiful people that live there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's almost split 50 50, by the way, uh, men and women. Ooh. Just, just a little survey thing. Well, you've been finding some trivia. Mm. And there was a report in the Daily News in 1957, which read in part Stones have been gently falling on the Kenanup Boyup Brook property of former of sorry farmer W W M Hack for nearly two years. AKA Bill. The occurrences have been intermittent and generally at the greatest intensity during the winter months. Mm-hmm. And nightfall. Yes. And so everyone's gone, ooh, ooh. falling stones. Ooh. Now, this is not the first time we've had a Falling Stones story, no, is it? No, it's not. We've had a couple in Australia. So, They've had enough to write a whole book on it. Yes. So if we go back to one of our first podcasts where we talked about Humpty Doo, one of our favourites. loves you. Um, we had a stone-throwing poltergeist there as well. Yeah. That mm. was later, though, wasn't it? In the 70s, that mm. one? Yeah. Mm. Oh, I can't remember. We've done 100 now. Oh, yes. So th- this whole thing started. Two and a half years earlier, or about two years earlier, on the night of May the 17th, 1955. And that's when the first random stone started to literally rain down on Gilbert Smith's little shack, which was situated down at the back of the property that uh, was owned by his employer, Bill Hack. Now, the family of Gilbert Smith was Indigenous Australian. And Bill Hack was a white Australian. Just giving now, you that piece of information. Yep. Yeah, now, look, we, we are going to do our best to be politically correct here. And I'm sorry if we trip up on things that um, we're just going to blame it on old age. <laughs> but we are trying to be our best, mm-hmm. to do our best to be sensitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, if I do read something that uh, doesn't sound politically correct it's probably because i am telling you uh what was written in the paper newspaper yes, at that yeah. time so we're quoting from newspapers yes. and i mean it's horrendous some of the things that happened we didn't we had a um white australia policy here up until 1967 and it was uh Pretty horrible. So, um, yeah, we, we this is a case that happened before then, so mm-hmm. we will need to be talking about the culture at the time. Mm-hmm. So as the stones were falling, some people said they could also hear a growl, a sad whistling noise. Did you hear about that? Did you yes. hear about that? The growl, the um, noise that y- was coming up when the stones were just about to fall? Um, I actually have a story about 
the dogs. Yes. So I'll wait till you get to the dogs and I'll tell that story. Yep. So I'm telling it now. It actually caused the dogs on the property to start howling and they started to try and break away, breaking their chains. They got so worked up in the end that that's what happened. They eventually ran off into the night from fear. Yeah. All right. I found it here. So this is coming from the book uh, that I did mention. That day of Tuesday, the 17th of May had started off well. There had been loads of fun for many of the locals at a sports day. Later, Gilbert had gone out visiting in his A40 ute. That is a utility car for those in America that might not know about our utes. Uh, Taking his five-year-old son, Noel, with him. They'd stopped in to see the Yates family and some other friends near... Cull the cup, leaving Jean and the other children at home. The trouble started just on dark while Gilbert was still away. The Smith's kangaroo dog seemed to go mad, barking and howling in terror. Now, kangaroo dogs are what they would use to hunt kangaroos and flush them out of the bushes and then shoot them. I know it's horrible, but that's what it was. The um, They went, mad. yeah, right, okay. 11-year-old Lorraine Smith, or Bobby, as she often liked to be called, recalls her first impression that there was some intruder outside flogging the terrified animals. So that must have been the sheer terror that mm. they were making. Mm. Her mother, Jean, went outside to see what was disturbing the dogs. Their terrified howling was far more than the commotion caused by the scent of a nearby fox or any approaching vehicle. The animals appeared panic-stricken and she decided to let them off their chains. But as she approached them, she heard a mournful whistle. Mm -hmm. It was a low note sustained in one key and a sound unlike any she had heard before. The dogs emitted blood-curdling howls, broke their chains and dashed off, disappearing into the night. Yeah. Wow. You can keep going now. Mm. Sorry. I just thought you might like that little story. No. Well, no. I okay. Guess, sorry. No, I'll shut I, up. I guess what we're trying to, to do is because the, the big thing about this is, again, a lot of people thought that this was all just made up mm-hmm. malarkey and mm-hmm. that, you know, there were people around the township that were, you know, creating a hoax or some sort of a joke or something. Uh, and there are so many things about this case that are really quite intriguing. Mm-hmm. And like the the people that have witnessed it um, are sort of the stoic farmers that are yes. pretty tough. Yes, and uh, don't believe in this up. stuff. Mm. And I'll I'll say something about the farmers in a okay. minute too that makes makes sense. So the stones seemed to come out of nowhere, and they landed on the rooftop, sounding literally like hail was falling on the roof. They somehow also got inside the shack. And dropped onto the dining room table and inside inside hurricane lamps. Yeah. How, how did they get inside hurricane and lamps? And they said that it was the, the holes that were inside the hurricane lamp when it was shut would be too small for anything to go yes. in. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they'd hear it clink. Yes. Now, the stones were also warm to touch. And this seems to be the case in all of these falling stone stories mm-hmm. that whatever energy is being exerted leaves its imprint on the stone and the stone is very hot. Yeah, some of them were too hot to handle and there is one story that Bill Hack, who was the owner of the property, um, actually has a scar on his hand or had a scar on his hand where he got burnt by one of the stones. Mm. Now, it wasn't just stones. It was also old bottles, 
potatoes. Good potatoes, that gets soap, me. Soap, knives, bones, and even a child's toy. All these things were being tossed around inside and outside the home. You and think they could throw something together for a stew out of all of that? <laughs> yeah. uh, this was not a one-off event either, but no one in their right mind ever thought that this was going to go on for days or weeks or months or years. And there were some times when the stones would ha- – there would be a number of episodes a day and there would be times when there would be nothing for quite a length of time. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very random. The events – in question, took place between the years 1946 and 1962. That's a long period of time. That's enormously long for this sort of activity because they always talk about poltergeist activity being quite short, Mm -hmm. comes to a a heightened Comes to a head, you pop it. Yep, and then then it's done. And even more interesting is that even though we are talking about one particular place today, it was happening in other places around the same time, oh. within within 300 kilometres of each other. Right. Yes. Do we, do we introduce a UFO here somewhere or something? Oh, you know, is, you, is, is he it, got a UFO story? Is it linked? a UFO that comes over and makes all of these things? I don't know. Oh, they're passing overhead. That's what it is. They've yes. landed somewhere. Yes. They're passing overhead and it's the gravel and the rocks and stones yep. that are falling from up. the legs that are yep. tucked up inside the aircraft. I'm sure. We've solved it. There you go. So many <laughs> Just years. Just finished now. We're done. <laughs> Many people witnessed these incidences. It wasn't just the families that were concerned. Uh, people were hearing about it and coming out. Uh, the Indigenous Australians spread the story amongst themselves. And then, of course, Bill Hack uh, told his family, who told other people, told other people. They also called the police out because they were actually thinking to begin with that it's probably someone in the community having some fun or trying to cause havoc. Or another uh, Indigenous Australian tribe that was coming in to uh, cause trouble with the the local Indigenous mm-hmm. Australian tribe. I hope I'm getting that right. <laughs> so, yes, uh, in the end, there were hundreds of people that saw saw these things. Well, it became uh, a bit of a party place. Yeah, first, first-hand, first-hand, and they would come specifically to try and see these things. But as it all escalated, the other farmers that were close by really got worried that too many people were coming in from out of town. And this was all nonsense. So they would actually sleep outside all night long Mm -hmm. to try and capture whoever it was making this kerfuffle happen. And talking about stoic farmers... It said in one of the articles, and I was reading that you know, to remind, let, let us remind you that these were stoic farmers who were working hard on their farm from dawn till dusk yes. and had no time to spend staying up all night. Too tired. To, you know, do this ridiculous thing. So they were invested in trying to work this out. They never caught anyone ever. And they nope. were at that point where they literally said, if it moves in the bush, bush shoot it. 
Yeah. We don't care. They actually They were had, there with guns. Yeah, they had um, – uh, like different people would come in and say, oh, this is all bullshit and we'll solve this problem. And they would come out and they would try to, to show everyone that it was fake and then they couldn't prove it. There was a stage where I think they had so many cars there all fanned out in a circle with headlights on and big spotlights on. They got their guns out and um, they – they did, did you do you have the story about the the indigenous in the trees? No. Uh, and they decided that it was a another indigenous tribe in the mm-hmm. area that was coming to cause trouble. They were climbing the trees and somehow rather hoisting these stones. So um, they <laughs> this is awful, but they they got on top of their trucks and they aimed their shotguns up into the tree. And as soon as the stones started falling, they started shooting at the trees to try and um, shoot whoever was in the tree. So it was like buckshot would go out and they'd be trying to, and to the point that eventually the somebody came in because it was like fireworks going off. Mm. So somebody came in from town and said, you've got to stop this. What the hell are you doing? Yeah, the, the police were called out to <laughs> yeah. stop it. Now, the stones ranged from pebble size all the way up to 19 kilograms. Nine, 19 wow. kilograms. That's my, that's that's like, my left calf. That's, that's <laughs> like, oh, almost two pugs. <laughs> my, well, my, my dog pug Koo. is 10 kilos. My, my coo weighs 19 kilos. Yeah, well, so my puppy dog. Yeah. And, of course, with all of this, the news spread and people started travelling from towns to come in and see it for themselves. Now, in 1957, the Daily News again reported, and again, I'm sorry for how this is said, just after the natives shifted camp, the stone phenomenon was witnessed by dozens of independent white witnesses. At 5.30pm yesterday, when he returned from a nearby stock sale, he found a crowd of people in a half circle behind the house. Stones were falling. They were picking them up as fast as they fell. Jack Coulter, Daily News, 1957. And in 2009, ABC TV aired a documentary about the spirit stones Mm -hmm. and they included interviews with as many of the people that they could that experienced the phenomena firsthand. I did get to see a little bit of that. I've been searching to try and find the whole episode. I haven't um, found it yet. Uh, I was searching on because I know it was an ABC program, so I was trying to find it there. You mentioned the Janik, yeah, yep. and so the Aboriginal people were quite worried at what was going on, mm-hmm. and they believed that possibly it could be a mischievous spirit that they called Janik. Mm-hmm. Others, of course, claimed that it was an elaborate hoax, and they tried to catch whatever or whoever it was, and they just that they were over all of this media coming into the township and just you know making a mess in the town. Now, the Indigenous communities who were the most frequently affected began to feel that the events were directly related to their connection with the spirit world. So something was going on, and, of course, that was very unsettling for them because, you know, was were the land spirits now angry at them? Um, what what was going on? So they, they had this mixture of their belief and all, obviously the continuing falling rocks put a sense of fear and superstition into their daily lives. So they kind of stopped working. They were afraid to come out of their houses. All of this disruption was going on in all of these um, farmlands in the area where, you know, the normal day's work was disrupted because of all of this stuff that was going on. Now, this next little bit comes from ForgottenOrigin.com. 
And it says even the press joined in through ascribing devious magic as being responsible and went even further in naming and shaming a member of the Aboriginal community, Cyril Penny. Oh, wow. Reviled by the press as being a jinx, so great was the public attack that he left the area for some time. It is oh. of note that rocks kept falling before and after he left the area and no apology or retraction was published in any tabloid outlet. Of course they wouldn't, as if anyone would admit they were wrong. Yes. Horrible human beings. As to what was officially considered to be the creator of this hoax, most people were, who witnessed the falling stones felt that human intervention was responsible. Kids throwing stones or bored farmers playing a prank was the most popular excuse. That scepticism is entirely understandable and very much a reflection of a society devoid of magic and obsessed with the here and now. The real and present problem with this rational dismissal is that the accusations were never proven. In an attempt to find something remotely rational behind all of this, the criminal investigation bureau received stones from reporter Hugh Schmidt who found no fingerprints and established stones were of local origin. Another associated phenomena mentioned often in the many rock and object flypasts were strange lights. Oh, I haven't read about ah, that yet. A light was seen by Jean Smith and a blue light by Aidan Eads. Mrs Hack was also present when a light flew past at speed. Ooh. So this is sounding very much like Min Min. Min, Min. Mm. Mrs Hack, and this is on the other side of Australia. Yeah. So Min Min was Queensland way. Yep. This is at the very farthest corner of Western Australia. So Mrs. Hack was sitting in her car outside the house at about 6pm and saw a powerful light travelling fairly fast, about two feet above a brook which runs through the property. When asked if perhaps the light could have been a car headlight, cycle light or lantern, Mrs. Hack definitely said no. What is a, a fascinating Sorry, what is a fascinating as it is intriguing is that the lights were but one accompaniment to this mystical salvo. Reading from the newspaper. Yep. Just before any stones fell, there was a bird-like cry. It was a bird-like clack sort of noise each time. People never heard the noise during the daytime. Before, during and after stones fall, there is a weird, uncanny, heavy and depressing atmosphere in the air. So it's like it's sucking the atmosphere yeah. and then pushing it back out. I don't know, really weird. Some of the volume and repetition of associated warning signals, some of journalists went the extra mile and openly acknowledged something mystical was afoot. In fact, the notion that poltergeist activities associated with individuals became a starting point for some journalists' interest at the time. They did this simply because every other potential avenue was literally a dead end. Nothing else made sense, and equally the locals were giving them nothing but mystical settings and prayers. Now, they couldn't attribute it to a person either. Uh, one article appearing in the Blackwood Times focused on one female uh, Indigenous uh, Australian teenager. Her name was Audrey Krakua. Krakua. Uh, she was 14 at the time the rocks fell, and it was claimed that she was perceived as a focus person for hundreds of stones falling in their camp. So they tried to find somebody to pin it on. Mm. 
Now, approximately 100 people were present and they carried out an experiment where each time Audrey was led away from the house, stones would fall. Similar stories were told about Jean Smith and a non-Indigenous boy, Harvey Dixon. Yes. Yeah, I've got some stories on those Mm. too. Now, Aidan Eads was involved in a very similar situation when stones were falling and in an interview given in 2004, after the rocks fell, he, sorry, mentioned that his entire family was taken away from their tin humpy to a location several miles away, but the stones continued to fall. He also remembered the efforts the local farmers went to to try and find stone-throwing culprits with no success. So convinced were the locals that stones were falling and that no traditional explanation held sway, one farmer decided to take the matter into their own hands by seeking out um, the Indigenous Australian practitioners. Now, you're going to tell a bit of that story, so I'm not going to... Oh, we're, yeah, we're all over the place there. There's um, bits of my story there, bits of your story. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's, that's and what's I'm, going to happen th- here. Because th- 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 we can't do... The history, because there's not really much history to do with Mayanup. This is like um, a possession case where we've we've sort of got to... Um, Include everyone yeah, that was there. Yeah, and what I do, because I've got some different information or some information to add to what Renata's given us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I might even go back a little bit and just uh, tell you a few other bits and pieces that I found as well. Now, yeah. now the the indigenous people kept on saying to everyone that it wasn't any of their people. It's not our own people. Uh, it's it's not. Uh, it's got to be either spiritual or paranormal in mm. some way. But no one could figure out at that stage what was happening. Now, this has not been. Um, solved this case. No. Now, Helen Hack, she wrote a book, as you said, and it was called The Mystery of the Mayanup Poltergeist, and you have a copy of that. Yes, I do. Now, she was related to Douglas Hack, who was one of the witnesses of the Falling Stones and the property owner's son. The National Library of Australia actually has a sound recording of an interview with Douglas Hack, but um, I tried to look and, and get it, but you've got to sort of get into the library and try and... Borrowing. Yeah, they make All it difficult sometimes yeah, it to, really. to yeah. get uh, some of this information. And like I have sent in requests before for information and, and you get nothing. You get nothing. They don't even respond to you. So it's like, it's just rude. And a lot of the people that left their uh, stories kept on saying that these stones went through things. Yes. They went through the roof without making holes. Yep. They would appear inside items like the hurricane lights, mm-hmm. lamps. They would be of different weights. The heaviest stone was 113 pounds or 50 kilograms. Yeah, which is massive. 50. That's massive. Some That's of, bigger than Max yeah, and Cool. <laughs> some of the stones <laughs> fell slowly. They floated sometimes even six six metres above the ground, they would land and then flip. This was stuff that they, they would follow you and sometimes just ping you and then fall down. None of them actually hurt no, anyone. Nobody, hurt, nobody got hurt. Hmm. There, um, there, apparently there was um, 
some sort of intelligence behind it as well, because I'm just trying to find a story here. I'm flipping through my book here uh, where it showed some sort of intelligence as well. It, it could like you or it could dislike you. And uh, we're talking about uh, one person there who had been drinking a little bit much and he was being aggressive and rowdy and obnoxious um, and they told him to clear off as he was making a nuisance of himself. And as he staggered to his car, uh, he got pelted with the stones and uh, that very quickly made him jump in the car, sobered him up and he drove off at great speed, which is terrifying because he was drunk driving. Mm. But on the other hand, there was another report in September 1955 in the Blackwood Times that it um, saved a life. There was, uh, now who was it? A timber worker felling trees near the Krakua camp on Lidford Hill believed that he owes his life to the poltergeist. He said uh, he'd ceased work to have lunch and was standing beneath a large white gum. The white gum or wandu is a hardwood tree nicknamed the Widowmaker because it tends to drop limbs with no warning in perfect conditions. A stone hit the timber worker on the left arm and he moved from where he was standing to investigate in the direction from which the stone had come. Immediately a huge limb fell from the white gum on the very spot where he had stood only seconds before. So the timber worker believed that the poltergeist mm. gave him a warning that saved his yeah. life. Yeah, wow. That's cool. And we have also, just to, to round this all off and finish it off, the whole thing about potatoes being found in the mix, <laughs> which I think <laughs> that's, that's a giggle there, the, the potatoes thing, and that things around the house would disappear and then later materialise. So yes. that's the ports. Yeah, yeah. Now... Um, we we had when did we have the start of it all? There was um, uh, 1955. Yep, yeah, it was May May 1955. Yep, but they realised later on that it may have started earlier, earlier because there was an incident where um, I think it was Bill was sitting down reading the newspaper, or it was it was one of them anyway, and uh, there was this sandy. Um, gravel that mm -hmm. showered down on the newspaper he was reading. It seemed to come from nowhere and I didn't think of anything at the time other than it was weird and just you know, dusted it off and kept going. But there was also on the 17th of May Gene Smith's nephew, nephew uh, Aidan, you mentioned before, kept finding gravel on his blankets when he woke up in the morning. And at first he thought, because there were six kids in this family living mm -hmm. in the the humpy out the back, and look, this the the workmen for the um oh god, there's so many different places. Uh, what was their names? Bill, uh, Bill and Hack. Ethel Hack. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, these guys were very respected by them because they were good workers. Um, they wouldn't just wander off and and not finish their work. They were very responsible. They were given like things like a floor. They had a, a nice floor in their house instead of being on the dirt. Mm -hmm. So very well, well respected. But um, yeah, he was finding this sandy grit in his bed. And he thought it was one of these kids that was putting it in there. So he started like yelling at the kids saying, stop doing that. And they kept saying, it's not us. It's not us. Uh, and it, it appeared for about a month before all of this started. Mm -hmm. So 
there was maybe it was building up. Mm. 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 Very interesting. It is, but now let me have a crack at some of these things here. Now, before we, we move on, uh, what what do you guys think is happening at this stage? Is this some sort of uh, land spirit from the Indigenous people? Is this a prank that is going on out there? What do you reckon, Renata? I don't know. We've, we've had, we've covered in the 100 episodes, we've covered the Hump Did You story, mm-hmm. which is all about flying rocks mm-hmm. and things. A couple of similar things have happened to the story we're hearing now. Yeah, the Pontefract definitely had poltergeist activity. Yeah. We've covered the Min Min lights. So you've got lights. Mm-hmm. You've got things happening again in an um, outback township here in Australia. Um, and we've got the Gyra Ghost. Yeah. Which again had stone-throwing incidences happen. Was it a period of time? I mean, has anyone heard of any stone-throwing activities in the last 20-odd years? I tried to have a look to find whether anything was coming up anywhere. And well, they do. They say that the um, the Black Monk Pontefract House is still active, but I don't think it is. I'm a bit suspicious about that. There's not stones, so it's normally marbles and mm-hmm. things that are being thrown mm-hmm. thrown around in there. Um, because if you go back and listen to that episode, if you haven't listened to that one, you'll get an insight into that and what mm. might be happening. I'm not going to give anything away here. Mm. But, yeah. Um, the whole stone-throwing thing is very ancient, though. So if you look mm. at some of the older ghost stories, a lot of them include stone-throwing. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, let's keep going. All right. So these guys really tried hard to debunk. Yes. Uh, and they used the best of their abilities. And as I said, they even put up um, – the, the myriads of people would come out and, and put their – what do you call it? The trucks with their headlights and mm-hmm. their lights on trying to catch whoever it was. They even went to the stage where they cleared the area around the house and really it was a fire break, but they used to call it the ghost break mm-hmm. so that they could see quite clearly if anyone was venturing. But the the problem with these stones is that they would fall very unnaturally. They would sort of um, defy the normal law of physics mm-hmm. and they would fall onto the roof or it was an item, it would fall upright. Mm-hmm. And not slide. And it would not, like if you throw a stone, it normally like clatters and bounces across a hard surface. This would land and stop. Yeah, like a plop. Yeah, it would plop. Uh, Now, there was a theory, and this is in the Australian Poltergeist book, that the primary primary um, suspect for the catalyst for the the living eye uh, living psi agent uh, was Jean Smith. Mm-hmm. Now she had apparently somewhat of a volatile personality, mm-hmm. but you'll you'll work out why shortly, right? When she was at home, that she was always angry with her husband and. Uh, as the Helen, the daughter-in-law, put it, she was known to have frequent and stormy arguments uh, and not somewhat uh, surprising that when she was stressed, these stones seemed to start to fall. Now, this 
poor lady was going through a difficult stage. She was going through a tough time with Gilbert. Um, and remember when the dogs were barking? Mm-hmm. And thank, thanks, my dogs, for the sound effects in the background. Uh, that she had been left at home alone and Gilbert had gone out. Mm-hmm. Now, she had six children and was pregnant with her seventh. Oh, Lord. She was also worried about her terminally ill father mm-hmm. as well. And she was left at home often to care, cook, clean, look after all these children, plus her 15-year-old nephew, Aiden. So there is a, a catalyst for you right there. Yeah. But it sort of gets even more interesting because there is another property that became involved. And I'll explain to you how this now gets linked together. So across the road was another property, and that was called Linford Hill, and that was owned by Bill Hack's brother, Doug. Uh, Now, they came over to witness what was going on when it first started, and they camped out and stayed with them for a week to try and work out what was happening. And their names were Alf... Oh, hang on. Uh, There was another Indigenous couple that lived on Linford Hill, and that was Alf and Molly Krakow. And they had seven children... Yeah, one of those children was blamed as the uh, yep. li- living agent. Yep, yep. Can let me get to it. Mm-hmm. You're taking my stories, Renata. Sorry, 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 sorry. I'd never do that to you. Uh, now, did you know that Jean Smith, right, who we thought was the catalyst, mm-hmm. that there was uh, one of the the people over there, Molly, right, Alf and Molly, the workers, mm-hmm. was. Related to Jean. Molly was Jean's niece. Right. So they've come over to see what's going on with Jean and Gilbert. Mm -hmm. Then they've gone back home and they've started to have stones falling on their roof and they're starting to get the same activity that was happening at the other property. Mm -hmm. Is it hereditary? Is this a living psi agent? If if Jean had it, yeah, the ability to do it, yeah, and she's activated Molly, yeah, when she's gone back to the other property, maybe she was angry for Jean for what Jean was going through, and that's activated her psychokinetic abilities. I don't think we've ever heard of a, a whole family, no, because there's another property. Yeah, but if you think of um, what's that one, the the Gyra, yeah, Gyra ghost, the uh, poltergeist. Remember the young girl that was involved in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I think she passed it on to her children, if I remember correctly. Uh, there, it's just I found that really interesting. It just popped into my head that maybe mm-hmm. there is some connection mm-hmm. genetically with mm-hmm. that. There could be, yeah. Could be. All right. So Alf and Molly had a 14-year-old daughter, Audrey, and that is where they think the connections all come through. So Molly, Mm -hmm. then into Audrey, Mm -hmm. genetic line. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, Audrey would sometimes walk around the property and the stones would follow her everywhere. They were falling around her and she used to think it was quite funny. 
uh, a large stone would suddenly materialise at uh, the knee height and then soaring very slowly upwards towards the roof and it would settle on the roof. They'd, uh, there were other people that come over. Gordon Barron and his two sons and several others came over and they watched a pebble shower um, similar to what they saw at the Humpty Doo. Uh, a handful of small stones about the size of peas hovering above them. That's just, like a swarm of flies. That's so bizarre. And then isn't they it? just dropped to the floor like wow. it was let go. Yeah. So this is at the other property. Mm-hmm. There, there is so much weirdness and strangeness going on. But like these things, there was another one where Gillian Peebles, a friend and gifted artist who ended up actually um, illustrating Helen Hack's book, saw a stone hit the building, the iron wall, the side of it, cling to it for a moment and then gently slide down the wall following the contours of the corrugation as if it was held to the iron by a magnet. Mm. When she tried to pick it up, it was too hot to pick up. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a very funny story. Um, And look, it's going to spill out beyond this, Mm -hmm. but there is a funny story about the stones, which I'd like to tell you. Apparently, these stones started to be called the the Janik stones or the Yannick, whatever the the yeah. the, the mm-hmm. indigenous spirit was called, and their um, people would collect them if they'd seen them fall, and they would have very high trading value amongst the schoolboys at school. <laughs> uh, they There was many hundreds and they were taken as souvenirs. Doug Hack apparently managed to use his Janik stones to barter for some of the clock parts he obtained from England and used in his grandfather clocks he made using a special talent in woodwork. Uh I, I think that's great that the, the stones have value. value. <laughs> yeah. There's also another I just as I said to Renata, I just uh quickly press pause. I'm finding all these great little stories and I just want to tell you some of them because it's so bizarre. Uh, another weird thing that happened is what seems to be an apport. Mm-hmm. Now a port is where something will materialize in thin air in front of your eyes and is just all of a sudden there. It's not there one minute and then it is there. There was um, a pair of red pliers on the Gilbert's roof. Doug Hack's youngest son, Kim, had climbed climbed onto the roof to clean off some of the accumulated debris. Every imaginable kind of debris was scattered over the sheets of iron, but the red pliers were immediately obvious as the pair, which had fallen through the fixed grating in the shearing shed some months previously. Previously, not one had got around to dismantling the grating to retrieve them. So they'd fallen inside Mm -hmm. a contained space and they just left them there. When they mysteriously landed on the roof of the Smith's house, house, they still had sheep dung clinging to them and the imprint of the plier's shape could still be seen through the grating in the place that it had originally fallen. Mm -hmm. So it apported from the shearing shed over to the house. Now, if you think that is a possibility, and obviously it is because it happened, would that suggest that whoever was the living agent should actually be thinking of that? 
for that to happen? Why do these random things like, okay, I'm I I have PK abilities. Oh and, wow, Renata, I never uh, knew. Congratulations. No, yeah, to say I have PK abilities. The last thing I'm going to think about is a pair of shearing pliers or whatever they were, and getting them out of a hole and apporting them to another place. Why are these random bits of things being apported? All right. Well, look, I'll put it to yours and mine, ADHD brains. How many things are we thinking of at one time? How many little bits and pieces are going around in our head in constant conversation of things that we think we must do and, oh, I forgot to do that. Oh, and that's right. I haven't done this yet. And it's like a constant inner monologue, isn't it? Mm, Yep. Is it possible that that whoever it is, the agent, has gone, oh, I could really use those red pliers. They're stuck up on that roof and um, and it's just a fleeting thought and in that moment they're reported. Hmm. I know. Uh, who knows? That's, that's weird. We just we don't have the answers to these. Now, there was another theory which I'd like to bring up. Okay. Now, some of these pebbles, some people thought had the letter W marked in the surf- surface of these they called the Yannick stones, Yannick stones. Now, the hack boys were especially interested in this phenomena and always checked the surfaces of the stones for mysterious marks. They wondered if it was possible that the poltergeist activity, activity was, in fact, their grandfather, Wilton Hack. So there's the W, mm-hmm. trying to communicate. Wilton was an interesting character who claimed in his latter years that he would come back in another life. As a young man, he had gone to Japan as a missionary, but instead of managing to convert the Japanese to Christianity, he himself was converted to Buddhism. <laughs> Woohoo! His Buddhist philosophy included, included being cremated on a traditional pyre in uh, Beverly after his death, so that's the, the town. This was a not not in Beverly. Poor, <laughs> poor Beverly. <laughs> Didn't we pick on Beverly in another show? <laughs> Beverly wouldn't be happy. Uh, this was a very unusual and daring request for the early part of this century in rural Australia and left a lasting impression on many locals. Years after Wilton's death, Doug Hack was having a drink at the pub after attending a sheep sale in Katadanging. He struck up a conversation. Where? Where? He struck up a conversation with a farmer from Beverly who, upon learning that his drinking partner was a hack, replied, I hope you're not related to that bloody old heathen that was burnt out in the paddock. We could smell him for a week. Isn't that a great story? (laughs) Oh, small towns, you've got to love it. Um, But there was no consistency with the stones. Mm -hmm. It might have been one or two out of the the thousands Uh that had showered Mm -hmm. that might have had something that vaguely looked like a W. Um, But this this goes to show what lengths they went to to try and piece it all together. Yeah. They they were scratching their heads. They really had no idea. But I'm going to introduce the, the... Janik now, and I apologise if I'm saying that wrong. Uh, so Gilbert Smith suggested that the um, the strange going-ons there might be the work of an evil spirit, as you do. As you do. Uh, and that his people would have referred to this as a... Uh, oh, these people were the Nyanga. Uh, they referred to it as the Janik. So initially the hacks thought that was a load of bollocks and um, Ethel sort of said she was reluctant that um, and the 
the reluctant conclusion that no human could be responsible for what is going on. So maybe they did need to look at something else. Mm. So uh, they decided that they would call in uh, an indigenous shaman or maba to exorcise the spook. Yes. Now, what normally happens when they try to do an exorcism? It all just goes to poop. It gets worse. It gets worse. So they found um, someone called the best-known Maba in the district was old Sammy Miller, who was famous locally for having found a lost child, apparently by clairvoyance, uh, and he quite happily agreed to come and help. Mm-hmm. So as soon as he set foot on the property, the paranormal activity stopped. It didn't resume until he left. Now, after conferring with some other clever men, as they call them, that's in inverted commas, uh, this, he told the Smiths that probably the, the problem here was the spirit of Jean's father. Now, remember I said that he was ill, very mm-hmm. ill, mm-hmm. Uh, and his name was Alf Eads, who'd suffered a severe stroke at Kenyon Up shortly before the haunting began. Now, this is interesting coming from an Indigenous person. So he was still alive and being nursed, but he was so gravely ill that the Maba said that his spirit was capable of leaving his body. Mm -hmm. Didn't we see that as an episode on the X-Files? I'm sure there was Billy, his name was, one of the early episodes in the X-Files, and he was uh, leaving his body and getting into mischief. They said that Gene had always been the dad's favourite child, and that's why the spirit had been drawn to Kenyon up. Uh, maybe that's maybe he didn't like Gilbert and what was going on in there, and he was coming mm. in to protect his daughter. Mm. Now, the spirit, he told them, was not to be feared. It was friendly, wouldn't hurt anyone, and that backs up what was happening with the actual stones and things that were falling. Freddie Winmar, he said, could catch the spirit and return it to her father's body. Now, this is great. I love this. Now, they weren't convinced. Jean wasn't convinced it was a father's spirit, but they said, you know, let's give it a crack. And so it happens. Um, they came out to the property and uh, there, there was no um, ceremony, you know, with uh, Christianity and when they do exorcisms, it's very lots of rituals yes. and prayers yes. and throwing of the holy water <clears throat> yep. Yep. and it's quite a big dramatic thing and only certain people are allowed to do it and all that sort of stuff. So there was nothing like that. He basically just came and stood there. I'd, I'd like to read this to you. There was very little ritual involved. No, Sammy Miller told the Blackwood Times reporter. We just catch it and put it back in the body. When asked what form the spirit took, he replied that to him it was a definite form, but to you white fellas it only looks like a puff of smoke. At dusk, Mr. Miller stood silently outside the cottage in which Mr. Eads lay and stared in the direction of the Mayanup. Freddie Winmar, meanwhile, descended into a nearby gully closely watched by the still sceptical Jean Smith. There she, she saw him chase and throw a blanket over something small and white. As he returned to the cottage, witnesses had the impression that whatever was inside the blanket, animal or spook, seemed to be struggling to get out. 
as the Blackwood Times reporter watched, the Marbars then opened up the blanket over Mr. Ede's prostate prostrate body, not prostate. <laughs> oh, how to ruin the mood? <laughs> Get his prostate out. No, prostrate body, Austin. Ostensibly returning the slippery spirit to its proper location. It is interesting that Mr. Eads, who had previously been lucid, uh, when lucid, uh, was scathingly sceptical of the Mar Bars, uh, said later that as the blanket was opened, it felt just like a big gust of wind hitting me in the chest. Wow. Yes. <gasps> so you would think... That was going to solve all the problems, wouldn't you? The shamans mm. claimed that all would be well from now on mm-hmm. at May and up. Mm-hmm. But they did leave themselves an out just in case mm-hmm. because they said Mr. Ede's spirit was not the only one there. There was another one there that he did not recognise it. So, ooh. Ooh. now they called it ghost catching and... Guess what happened after they they got Mr. Eads back in his body? Guess what happened, Renata? What? He died. No. (laughs) (laughs) The poltergeist pranks got worse. Oh, no. It increased. It got faster and more furious than ever. And not only was it during the night time, when it only normally happened during the night time, now it was daylight hours as well. So... Nothing was solved and it gets worse because it spreads further. But this is where we're going to leave it for this week. Oh, gosh. What a point to leave this story. I know, right? (laughs) So just going back very, very quickly, we have a family under siege by rocks and things flying around the house, appearing and disappearing. People have come from all over the world to see this for themselves because it is astounding, 1950s, for this to be happening in an outback town with like less than 200 people in it. Yep, and no technology or anything to create clever devices. No technology, no no EMF per se, all of this sort of stuff that we sort of talk about nowadays and say it's got to be this... And so they're all out there in the middle of the night with their their guns and their torches and their lights and they're not seeing anything and they cannot make out where this is coming from. And the indigenous shaman have done their magic. They have yes. they've caught one spirit and returned it to where it's got to come from. Mm-hmm. But the poltergeist is not happy now. No. Let's find out what happens in next week's episode of True Hauntings. I hope you've enjoyed our 100th episode. Send us a happy birthday message because we would love to hear from you. And guys, we will see you next week on the True Hauntings podcast. In the meantime, stay spooky. And remember, be frightfully good. See you on the dark side. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of True Hauntings. If you like the show, give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. For more on Anne and Renata, follow at Anne and Renata on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. Or visit their website, 
www.anandrenata.com. 